This is the BFF Podcast, your one-stop shop for all things business finance. Each episode will feature an industry expert who will cover all the latest in technology, strategy, and optimizing the finance function for success. Hosted by Kate Wilson and Derek Chang, the BFF Podcast is brought to you by Tipalti, powering payables today and tomorrow. We're excited to welcome our BFF of the day, Wendy Walker. Wendy is a solution principal at Sovos Compliance. She is a results-driven financial leader with an emphasis on U.S. and global tax withholding and information reporting. Wendy has held positions as the VP Corporate Compliance Manager at Zion's Bank Corporation and VP Operations Manager at Chase. Her specialty is working with global financial institutions on large-scale technology projects. It's great to have you on the podcast, Wendy. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you. So, Wendy, we know that you are a quilter. I am. As as part of a hobby. You've been quilting a lot since quarantine. More so than you can imagine. Prior to quarantine, I was traveling about, probably on average, about three weeks a month. So, you know, it kind of made it difficult on weekends to really do that. I mean, I just, you know, spent that time catching up to get back on the road again. But since quarantine, yeah, it's amazing how much more I'm getting done. (laughs) Do you quilt for yourself or do you quilt and then give? Yeah, I started by quilting for myself because I was kind of embarrassed to (laughs) give. I'm about three years into this now though, and I've kind of graduated. My skill level has graduated. So I started to give gifts in the last, last two years. You know, quilting as a hobby requires a lot of planning and getting everything mapped out to make sure everything fits. As a compliance expert, do you think that's why you gravitate towards that? (laughs) You know, I think two things. I think one, I am probably a little obsessive compulsive. (laughs) And Uh, I like I like the order, you know, that you put to that. I like putting those pieces together, I think. But yeah, I do actually I, I have a background in kind of process engineering. And so from a tax perspective, that's what information reporting is. And so I do think I do think that probably lends itself to some of my success there. I, I would say though that it's more of a more of an outlet for me mentally. So Yeah, we all need that right now. Expanding on your background a little more, how did you get your start in finance? Yeah, my first introduction to finance was in a role where I managed all of the purchasing and related accounts payable functions for a rock quarry in New Jersey, if you can believe it. So I was part of the high school job sharing program and the school found this job for me and I worked part time in the afternoons as part of my credits for high school. And I worked for three purchasing agents who procured millions of dollars worth of heavy equipment for mining and transporting, you know, asphalt and pavement and other types of quarry materials. And I kept track of the books. I issued purchase orders. I matched up the invoices. You know, I facilitated with accounts payable to make sure vendors were paid. And I participated in the year-end project to issue the 1099 miscellaneous forms to the vendors as my first real exposure to tax reporting. And that didn't scare you off, it sounds like. It sounds like you really dove into it. People have learned in this in this universe of 1099 reporting, it seems like once you have a little experience, everyone looks to you in the job. And so once that hit my resume, I seemed to be that person in several jobs before it finally became my full-time role. What do you enjoy most about your current role? Well, so everybody understands 1099 and W-2 reporting is the IRS and state's you know, primary enforcement tool for ensuring that businesses and individuals report and pay their share of income taxes. So 
for me, it's the fast paced change and growing requirements of tax reporting. It's what's really has always kept me interested in the industry. In this role, it's the dynamic people that I work with across a variety of industries. I think that's my favorite part. So I work with government agencies at, at a global level, at, at the federal and state level to shape tax policy. I get to work with a variety of industries, right? Crypto exchanges, gig platform companies, direct sellers, multi-level marketing organizations, some of the world's largest banks and insurers. So the tax issues that impact all of those industries, it's unique in many cases and it, and it crosses over in some of them. And so really the perspective that I have across these different industries, you know, just really helps me to help our clients. That's what I really enjoy about that. Yeah, in fact, Sovos, I mean, they've been around since before MTV. (laughs) And, you know, what are some of those big changes in compliance since the company was founded, or even since you've joined? Yeah, that's a good question. So, you know, back in the mid 80s, when Sovos was founded, and our founder generally created the company for 1099 miscellaneous reporting issues, right? That was the main form that was causing issues. But over the years, a number of regulations have come along to require, you know, 1099 interest, 1099 dividend, you know, new forms like the FATCA forms or the 1099 NEC that we're seeing this year. And so I think, you know, over the years, I'd say since about 2008, since the last economic downturn, we've just seen significant increase in state and federal information reporting requirements. And again, it goes back to what I said before. I think it's because it is the government's primary tool for enforcement. And they're finding that it works. So, yeah, I think that's probably what's changed the most is just a lot more forms with a lot more requirements. What inspired you to pursue a career as a tax withholding and information reporting expert? Yeah, the complexity, I I think, of the process. There's a complex operational and technical process in, in tax withholding and reporting. In one of my roles that you talked about in my bio, I, I oversaw the tax reportable data that was coming out of some, you know, 35 different operating systems. And that data fed into other systems so that, you know, we could ultimately deliver printed 1099 statements or files of electronic statements or delivering to systems to do transmittals to the IRS and the state. So, you know, the nuances that are involved with those that web of systems and every part of those processes along the way, it's really challenging. And I find that to be, you know, what really keeps me really engaged in this career. And and the IRS, again, as I mentioned, the IRS and states keep changing the rules. <laughs> so it continues to keep you on your toes. Do you have any tax horror stories or cautionary tales. You don't have to name names, but uh, <laughs> I do. What have, you seen, what have you seen in terms of your history doing this that, you know, kind of would scare off of some folks? I think one of the one of the two I'd say two things. One one thing that I did when I, I was in a role where I was responsible for millions and millions of tax forms being produced. And you can imagine it's difficult to find problems when you have millions of forms. And one year, I, as soon as we nailed out our tax forms, we began to receive that the horror of the phone calls from the people who had been receiving them reporting a problem. We had some 40,000 clients that were impacted by, uh, out of those millions, incorrect reporting of a certain amount. A, wow. des- a decimal point, you know, just a decimal point had gotten off. And so, you know, it just really, really highlighted for us the need to have technology in place to really be looking for the needles in the haystack because doing that manually with all that data is just, you know, virtually impossible. Yeah. Humans can't verify every 
transaction and tax compliance. And then I'm sure the new business models around gig economy, tech structures, that's all changing it. State, federal, international regulations, they're getting more complex. Can you talk about the adaptability and rigor that actually software provides in meeting that challenge? Yeah. I mean, so especially in tax reporting, we we definitely are, you know, in a situation where there's a tremendous amount of change going on with tax reporting requirements that requires not only some, you know, analysis to be done, but then it also requires changes to a system to produce the data. And and what happens with a lot of clients is that there are mul- multiple operating systems. And when that data is being produced and then it has to be aggregated together and then formatted in various formats, right, you, it, things can get off track. And so it's certainly important to have robust technology that is in place to look to compare against the, the different jurisdictional rules to you know raise red flags when data you know doesn't look like it makes sense and to you know also to alleviate the burden of having to keep those systems up to date that I mentioned at the start of this and I think that's the one thing is that tax reporting you know it's if it's not your core business you know it's just not something that the company should be trying to take on given this constant changing environment. In your opinion, what are the biggest challenges finance is facing in our current climate? Well, I think working in a remote environment, right? (laughs) Especially as we head into the tax season. The month of January, it's filled with tax withholding and reporting obligations that have to be fulfilled. And it requires this orchestration between a lot of employees spanning a lot of lines of business and some of our some of our clients. So, you know, to keep things on track, the critical teams that process 1099s, they're usually together physically during January so that, you know, they can quickly collaborate, resolve issues so as not to let 40,000 forms go out with the wrong information, <laughs> you know, um, but also to keep them on track. Sometimes when you're you have to quickly make decisions to keep your timelines on track. So a lot of our clients are building plans to figure out how to collaborate and communicate remotely so that they can, you know, not to, not so that they don't impact the, the conversations that have to keep that train moving during January. I think another significant challenge I would mention in this remote environment is handling organizational mail. And I say that in the tax world because governments send paper tax notices and correspondence still, right? And and some tax professionals are, uh, are really struggling to implement a reliable process to receive and process incoming mail so that, you know, they can re- re- respond to it. Another challenge, I think, is that many tax returns still have to be printed and physically signed. And with organizations limiting how many people and how much time can be spent in the office, employees have to be careful not to miss deadlines just because they couldn't print, you know, and mail documents timely. So one client reported to me this month that they've implemented, they've actually, it's been a a project priority for their organization this year. It moved to the front of the line as far as technical projects was to implement a robust mail tracking system where they can scan documents and route them electronically within their organization. A lot of of outside the box thinking going on in these unprecedented times. (laughs) Yeah, besides just doing that, are there other strategies that companies are taking right now? Yeah. So, I mean, another one for us is, you know, getting prepared is outsourcing. So for us, B and P notice season or, you know, processing work, sending out notices, processing tax information that has to go out at different compliance intervals during the year. So we're, we're finding a lot of need for outsourcing. So we're seeing a lot of people coming to us and looking for outsourcing support because they just do not have, they're worried about data, right? Private data being sent to employee home environments. 
things like that. So a lot of clients are looking for solution providers to that are experts in their industries so they can outsource some of that work. How can today's companies successfully mitigate risk? I definitely think that there is an opportunity these days to pay attention to global trends. So for our clients, you know, the global trends that are happening in tax are really important in, in depending on the, the segment that they're operating in. So paying attention, creating a business plan to not only be prepared for what's coming, but to, you know, safeguard your business against what's beyond the horizon. Time and again, we have clients create what we call band-aid solutions to solve maybe a problem at hand, but they don't anticipate the need to be technically, operationally agile, right, to adjust to those constantly changing requirements that are going on around the world. I'd also say, you know, look for opportunities to create value, even in these toughest of times with your clients. I already talked about the issues of dealing with paper processes, you know, as a result of the pandemic and the, and the remote work. But outside of that, I, I work with a lot of clients that use, utilize legacy technology that doesn't satisfy, you know, their compliance or tax requirements. And, and it also doesn't, you know, satisfy even some of their own operational needs. And so they throw manual processes at things. So I think in these times, we should be, you know, we can drive process automation to eliminate manual processes, to, to refocus resources on more strategic initiatives and, and, you know, really minimize the risk of penalty at the same time. Last thing I want to say before I let you move on is take control of data. We were just seeing this as a, as a big issue this year. And as a former leader of tax ops and compliance, my primary challenge was the ability to see across all of those systems that produce the data, right, to make sure that there was compliance in what we were doing in reporting. The disjointed nature of systems that produce taxable data creates penalties and unnecessary risk for, for companies. So, you know, take control of the data so that your business isn't caught off guard. And obviously, one way to do that is software. When people think about software, sometimes I think they think, oh, it's a robot. It's going to just reach this simplistic level of compliance. But you know, anyone who's ever maneuvered tax laws knows that the process is probably more subtle than that. And <laughs> so how does a solution like Sovos kind of address the more interpretive side of tax compliance? Yeah, that's a good point. So, I mean, the IRS is definitely very black and white about the technical specifications, right? So what should land in what box? But but yeah, I mean, there's definitely some interpretation. So we do a couple of different things. We first try to do things that seem reasonable, right? So for example, it seems reasonable that if someone is reporting interest paid amounts on a 1099, interest income amounts on a 1099 INT, that the box two on that form, that if there were a deduction, a credit, that that credit wouldn't be more than the amount that was paid in box one. And so we have a validation in our technology to say, hey, you, know, you might want to look at this. Box two, it's it's a credit amount and it's greater than box one, which is a debit amount. Are you, are you sure that should look that way? And so, you know, it's not, it's not necessarily the IRS is going to reject this. You have a compliance issue, but it's more of a, are you sure this is correct? You might want to take a look at it. And sometimes there are strange scenarios where it is correct <laughs> and a client will bypass that kind of control. But yeah, so for each of the forms, we try to go through and look at those kind of reasonability checks. And then we create what we call, you know, rejects, which are hard rejects for what won't pass the IRS's snuff test in terms of even the submitting a file versus, eh, you might want to look more into this to see if it makes sense for files. So it's more assistive and consultative even. Absolutely. Yeah. And it needs to be because as you said, it's very interpretive. <laughs>
We've touched on this, but any other additional thoughts on how technology can improve financial controls? Yeah, so you know, much of the much of the organizational, the financial reporting activity, it resides in the various business operating systems that I mentioned. For at least, you know, in many of our clients, there's there's multiple operating systems. So, for financial and tax reporting purposes, much of that data has to, like I mentioned before, it has to be pulled out of those different systems, and then it has to be aggregated, validated, and reported, you know, in these different formats to the to the government. And so when you have technology that can flexibly, you know, ingest that transactional data, validate it electronically according to those requirements and produce the output that can be, you know, reliably submitted to the state, federal, and sometimes even global jurisdictions, it's really crucial to mitigate the risks that are associated with that data as well as, you know, your own resources that it takes to manage it. Our audience tends to be what our mid-sized companies are what we like to call high velocity businesses. You know, they're, they start off small, they're growing rapidly. What can these companies glean from kind of their larger brethren about compliance and how to do that? So they are not overkilling that innovation and speed in which the business happens. Yeah. I always say there's like a point of no return. It seems right. Like yeah. <laughs> some clients seem to go along and they everything seems really easy. And then some tipping point happens in their business. And all of a sudden it's out of control and they have penalties and too many forms and the compliance risk, you know? So I think one thing we always say is, you know, I, I always say to people, you know, the first thing you want to do is you want to make sure that whatever products you launch and offer into a marketplace that you analyze your tax requirements and you understand your obligations, right? Because that's going to give you better decision making in terms of how to tackle that. Lower volumes of 1099s, while while sometimes they might seem easier because there's lesser volumes, they're not always. For example, the 1042S form, which is for reporting, you know, payments made to non-US recipients, you know, many clients that we have don't report huge volumes of that form, but it's very difficult. There's a lot of codes and a lot of intricacies on that form. And so even a client that reports like 500 of them will come and seek a solution like ours because, you know, the the complexity of the of the rule set that you know makes up the the accuracy of those forms, they they need the technology to help them with that. Conversely, some people think that lots of different form type means complexity too, and it does, but you know, depending on what those forms are, sometimes it could be a big deal at the federal level versus the state level or vice versa. So I say for for example, the 1099K is a form right now that it's not not too difficult to put together at the federal level because it's got, you know, at least if you're a, a third-party settlement organization because you have a big threshold afforded to you for reporting. But for many of the states, they're requiring that form to be reported at a $600 threshold, different threshold, different requirement. And so that form is becoming more and more onerous for people to report at the state level. So they look for technology for it. So I would say, you know, for for a new company, it's about knowing what kind of products you're issuing, what your tax obligations are to then decide, you know, whether or not you need to go out and invest in technology to support it. And as I said at the start, there is a point of no return. So don't get too far down the road before you're thinking about, you know, investing for the long term. In terms of both the federal agents and even state agents, you know, what is their kind of auditability capacity right now? Do they, are, is there a lot of auditing happening? Yeah, that's a good question. I've been seeing a couple of things with this. The tax gap that the IRS publishes, the last one they published was back in in 2019, and I think it was up through 2013. But the, the point is that the IRS, that tax gap document, the IRS is what, how they publish and, and talk about 
not only the gap, but the information returns that they use to try to close the gap. So in that report, they will look for, they will make recommendations to Congress around new 1099 or expanded 1099 reporting rules that are needed to get at the gap. And so all of that to say that information reporting compliance is an electronic enforcement tool for the IRS. So you file your income tax return, and then you are supposed to include, say, your W-2 and 1099 information. And when you don't, and the third party has also filed that information, the IRS now has you know, the ability to say, hey, taxpayer, you did not include this 1099 information. And they can do that without auditing you. They can send you an automatic notice. Their system recognizes it, and they can send you an automated notice. So it would say that we're seeing, especially in the last few years, that they're working smarter and not harder. Because they have been, you know, had a lot of resources cut in the last 10 years for enforcement. And so we're seeing them put kind of more money into systems than bodies to, to do that. So we see a lot of enforcement at, at the IRS level around backup withholding and around 1099s that are being filed with missing or obviously invalid TINs. That's probably one of the key areas for penalty right now. And are states adapting that same model of kind of checking that way? They do. One thing we're seeing there is that because many of the states were used to participate in the IRS's sharing program, so they would wait to get their 1099 information through that IRS sharing program. And what we've been finding out over the last couple of years is that the IRS isn't sharing that information with the states for almost a year after we submit it. So how can they match it, right? It's long gone. They've already processed their income tax returns. So since about 2015 with the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, or sorry, with the PATH Act, we have seen quite a change in direct state reporting requirements, particularly around non-employee compensation, around that 1099K that I mentioned, but just, you know, more direct state, more accelerated filing requirements just because they can't get that information from the IRS. What is the most important thing companies should consider when they start to expand globally? Well, I think there's probably like a top 10 right there. But since I'm in tax, I would say tax compliance, right? (laughs) But honestly, I I will tell you that in many cases with U.S. companies, you know, you you can't just go and create an offshore entity and offer products to to non-U.S. taxpayers and avoid U.S. tax obligations. You just, unfortunately, the way the tax laws are written, even if you are a subsidiary of a U.S. entity, you have to apply U.S. tax rules. So you really have to consider tax issues in both the jurisdiction in which you are incorporated, as well as the jurisdictions in which you intend to operate. I've had firsthand experience with an organization that failed to take into account those tax impacts for their client as a result of an investment product that they decided to launch in a country that wasn't so tax favorable to to non-U.S. investors. And so after their clients were already subjected to 30% tax withholding on their earnings payments, the company wanted to make a quick structure change to the product so they could avoid that going forward, right? But, But I mean, the damage was already done. Clients had already been, you know, invested in the product and had to deal with that 30% withholding. So, you know, knowing all of your tax risk, I think is really important in both your own jurisdiction, as well as the one that you're going to do business in. Is that different for, say, countries that have negotiated FATCA with the U.S.? Yeah, definitely. I mean, even before FATCA, so FATCA is what we call Chapter 4 of the Code. Chapter 3 of the Code existed and still exists, and it's probably harder than Chapter 4 in that it, in, the IRS has individual tax treaty agreements with all those different countries under Chapter 3. And so, you know, if you pay interest or dividends or services performed, 
type of income to non-U.S. people, you do have, there is income tax withholding on those payments. The, you know, a W-8 form doesn't just make it exempt. So you have to do some level of withholding and, you know, interest in one country might be 10% rate of withholding. It might be 25% in another country. So you have to know ahead of time what those impacts are to the people who are, you know, going to be subjected to withholding taxes. And you mentioned there are about 10 things to consider. Any other ones you want to highlight? Well, yeah, definitely legal, right? So for example, a lot of what I do obviously stems around tax, but I can tell you that in my past life, you know, we would create a lot of entities for investment purposes. And it was very interesting to me um, that to legally create an entity in another company, another country, you know, there's a variety of different licensing, how to get your tax ID number, forms that have to be filed, privacy laws. So whether or not data can go across, uh, leave the country. So, you know, just uh, there is a variety of legal decisions that you should be reviewing as well. And so they usually go hand in hand with tax. But yeah, I'd I'd say that'd be another one I would add. On the personal side, do you have a philosophy around your work? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I think that people would say about me that I encourage others to focus on the positive. I truly believe that positivity transfers into everything in your life, including your work. So, and, and I believe that that, that's because, well, I believe that for one reason. I used to be a pretty negative person when I was younger. I dwelled a lot on what might happen, the what ifs, what people might think of things that I said or didn't. I worried a lot. You know, I didn't sleep very well. I had stomach aches, <laughs> especially as the stress level in my career grew and I, you know, was responsible for more and more people and, and outcomes. So I didn't feel very well. And I didn't make other people feel very well that were around me either, especially not those that were, you know, closest to me, my husband and my kids. So um, back in like 2010, my husband started an amazing transformation in our family by using one word. And it is fantastic. People would ask him how his day was. He would say, fantastic. And he meant it. He was genuinely enthusiastic about it, smiled when he said it. You know, he exclaimed it when he said it, even if he didn't believe it that day. And that positivity, it spread. People would genuinely react to that positivity. They would smile broadly. They would ask why he was having such a fantastic day, you know, giving him the opportunity to get to know them better. And when things were tough, when money issues were happening in our, our marriage or our life or career troubles or kids were being crazy, you know, we focused on those positive outcomes that we wanted. And in most cases, even today, we see positive results come right back to us because of that. So, you know, I'm very much a look on the bright, bright side kind of person. I try to find the positive side and the negative kind of person. You know, you create your own destiny. Yeah, certainly positivity is takes more bravery than negativity. Absolutely, it does. And, and being able to call people out on it, right? I'm curious in terms of, if you're willing to share, you know, what was that switch? How did, how did that flip happen? It's probably a little cliche to some people, but for us at the time, it was, I don't know if you've ever seen The Secret. There's a oh, movie yeah. or a book about it. Yeah. But back then, I think it was interesting because we were, you know, there, there was a, it was during the last economic downturn or right after it. So a lot of people were having mortgage crisis problems. I was in a, working for a financial institution that was foreclosing on a lot of homes at a very high stress job. And yeah, when we found that, it was an amazing, positive, fresh breath type of look at how you could put a shiny spin on things and, and truly how you could, you know, make your own destiny. 
So what is the shiny spin on corporate tax compliance? <laughs> you know, well, for me, frankly, it was for, it was from a career standpoint, it was the growth of tax compliance. So <clears throat> at that time, I was kind of bored. To be honest, we were doing 1099 reporting for bank deposit interest and, you know, maybe some accounts payable work. But around that time is when FATCA came. <laughs> and then the 1099K rules came. And and so, yeah, it was around that time that tax compliance started to really take off. And so this, this career of mine personally took off. That was my shining star. Are there any personal missions that you're passionate about? Continuous improvement. I invest in continuous improvement. You know, I mentioned one of my hobbies is quilting, but I'm also a really avid exercise person. So content for myself, just a personal mission for me is uh, personal health. Perhaps it's because I come from a family of people who died young. I, I My mother's still alive, but everyone else in, on that side of the family has passed. And so believe very much in personal health and taking care of your body and your mind, because I do think it translates over into your work and your personal relationships. And for our last question, any final advice for our business finance friends? I mentioned continuous improvement as an individual, but I I would say invest in growth and continuous improvement in your organization, right? So many of our clients come to us to help them with kind of, they've created a mess of short-sighted decisions, usually because they come to us because now they're paying long-term consequences, right? So whether it was short-term decisions around employee comp or hiring practices or ineffective use of their technology resources or failure to recognize this change, changes that were happening in their core market, stagnancy and and decision-making that's based on short-term outcomes really can negatively impact the long-term health of the company. So you just really encourage people to invest in growth and and continuous improvement because finance and accounting and tax is not a stagnant market, right? It's constantly changing. Another huge thank you to Wendy for joining us today. Yes. Thanks, Wendy. Thank you. For all our listeners, be sure to tune in next time for a new episode of the BFF podcast. Thanks for joining your BFFs. Subscribe to the Business Finance Friends podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever podcasts live. If you have any feedback or would like to participate in our podcast series, email us at bffs at tapalti.com.